0: And another ep- welcome on into to the Superintendent Radio Network and another episode of Beyond the Page, our monthly podcast that dives a little deeper into some of the stories inside Golf Course Industry magazine. I'm Matt Lowell managing editor of GCI, joined this month by a couple of our regular contributors, Judd Spicer and Bradley S. Klein. Judd wrote one half of our July cover package on carts cart stories, cart conversations, and he handled more the agronomy and maintenance side of the conversation. What has happened to golf courses these last few months with first fewer and then more and more carts on the course? There have been a lot of four-cart foursomes out there, but there have also been a lot of courses that have been shut down or are still shut down. How has all that affected the turf? Brad is a former PGA Tour caddy. He is one of our columnists. And in our June issue, he wrote a column suggesting some modest proposals about the future of golf carts on the course. I hope you'll enjoy this episode. I think you will. Without further ado, Judd Spicer and Brad Klein. My first guest on this episode of Beyond the Page, a frequent golf course industry contributor, a familiar name to folks who read the magazine and to folks who listen to this podcast, Judd Spicer. Welcome back to your second appearance on Beyond the Page. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well, uh, surviving out here, not just in the SoCal sizzle of a Palm Spring summer mat, but uh, of course during the uh, pandemic, uh, which we're all enduring, so I hope all is well with you guys. Of course, not just a pleasure for me to be chatting with you again, but after a brief hiatus, it was a pleasure to get back in the pages of golf course industry.
0: Great to have names like yours, like Rick Wolfel, who wrote the other half of the July cover package on carts, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Uh, Lee Carr, a lot of great, great writers and reporters whose work has been featured in the magazine over the years, and I know it was only a few months. It seemed a lot longer than that, uh, just because every day has felt like a week, and every week has felt <laughs> like a month, and I think we're, what, four months into this, and I feel like I've uh, I've aged a year at least, and I'm sure everybody else can say the same.
1: Well, since we've never had the pleasure of meeting in person, I can't point out any aesthetic difference in your appearance, but you sound the same.
0: Well, I've lost like 30 pounds since Thanksgiving, but other than oh, that... Impressive. So your story, half of the cover package from July, uh, Rick Wolfel and you both wrote about carts, cart conversations is what Guy called it. Your half was kind of the agronomics and the maintenance end of things. You talked with folks all around the country uh, about what has been going on as it relates to carts on the course over the last four months. Now, before we get into... Some of the folks you talked with, some of the things you learned while reporting and writing that story. What have been your own on-course cart interactions these last four months? Have you been playing with any regularity? And if so, are you walking or are you just taking single carts? Or or what's been the MO out there in the desert?
2: Well,
1: um, we had a period of time here, Matt, where everything was closed, Mm -hmm. uh, as dictated by uh, Riverside County mandate. Uh, For a time, it looked like they were going to be closed for months and months and months. The city ended up reversing course on that mandate. And so ultimately, they were forced to shut down for about a period of two months. So whether we're talking golf carts, whether we're talking rounds, whether we're talking employment, that, of course, had many tentacles of different issues. Uh, Since they reopened, Uh, As we've seen, not just in California, but throughout the country, there's definitely been a pent-up demand for people playing golf. The numbers uh, reflect that. I've seen that via a few different sources. Um, Whether it's articles that I've read or doing my interviews and reporting and writing of this article, uh, all the parties evidence that from late spring into early summer – that there's been a surge in golf rounds as it pertains here to the desert. I mean, by virtue of the sizzle that I referenced, I mean, today going to be like 113 degrees, man. Oh so God. there's only so many people that are living out here right now. Of course, a lot of the snowbirds have, have long flocked away and there's just not much afternoon golf to be played. But the courses that uh, were able to reopen quickly, after the county lifted its mandates, they are still seeing uh, a bit of a demand, certainly higher when compared with last year. Uh, I've had several people tell me that. And as it pertains to this article, I played just yesterday morning, and basically every course I've played from mid-June to yesterday, I have started to see, as a lot of people have, how these single rider carts are affecting the appearance in the agronomy of courses.
0: There have been some superintendents on Twitter, golf Twitter, uh, agronomy Twitter, it's a great place, uh, who have posted photos of some of those just... I don't want to say they're terrifying or horrifying, but they are very dispiriting to see so many different tracks and so much wear and tear on various courses. And again, some of them were saved from that wear and tear for several months, like you said, in your neck of the woods, a couple of months. But it's still at this point, it's it's tough to see some of these photos, really.
1: Yeah, it's not, uh, it's not pretty. Um, the sources that I spoke with in this article, you know, we talked about the recommendations, and uh, I was impressed with a lot of the things that these individuals have tried to do. For your listeners, they're going to be familiar with Several of the techniques that have been suggested, whether it be scattering carts, uh, whether it be ropes placed uh, before greens, maybe even upwards of 70 yards or more uh, before greens, I guess that's not too atypical. Uh, Spray painting before greens, Uh, that's just the on-course portion of it. So all these folks, including folks that I've spoken with that were not quoted or included in this article have definitely been trying all that stuff but as you said the signage really can only go so far to protect the golf course
0: and i'm sure there are people plenty of people even these days who if they see a yellow rope on the ground will still just drive over it anyway
1: uh there's definitely a portion that uh that echoed that um everyone I spoke with and maybe every superintendent or course manager or agronomist that I spoke with for this article or whatever, they hate signage. They don't like course signage. I think one of the sources for this article, the gentleman from, uh, I believe his name is Brent Downs from Otter Creek in uh, Indiana. I think he he referred to it as course furniture, which I kind of loved, but he is absolutely right. Um, And so in covering how much they can do with this signage and you don't want it to be too overt and you certainly want it to be in the face of golfers and certainly now perhaps more than ever for both health reasons and agronomy reasons. You want the signage to be in somebody's face, but you can only have so much. So another one of the techniques that was explained to me is more and better off course communication with your regular golfers
0: and i think it was downs in your story who is in just regular constant communication with his players he's at otter creek uh like you said in columbus indiana that's a 27 hole facility out there beautiful um i actually have the the quote in front of me believe it or not he said they're just so happy to be out there playing that i've had really good luck with them uh i won't tell you we didn't see some damage we did, but I like to see, think we were forward-thinking with both communication and he mentions roping, so we didn't see as much damage. When you talked with him, when he's talking about being in constant communication, is that email blasts? Is that is he texting folks? Is he just talking with them when they come in ahead of their round, or, or what's he doing?
1: Well, both he and then cumulatively the other sources mentioned a lot of things along those lines. Um, not rare during the pandemic nor previous to it for clubs that have uh, their stuff together to have a regular monthly or perhaps bi-monthly uh, newsletter or email blast uh, set out to, uh, to members or regular players. I know that that has been a technique. The clubhouse uh, physical, uh, the tactile Signage uh, when people, I guess, are allowed in clubhouses, not the case uh, for every course certainly. We even talked about stuff as simple as above uh, above urinals, and I know that uh, may be a little too descriptive. But I guess when that was mentioned to me, my first reaction was that when I go and use the men's room and there's uh, whether it's a sports page or they got something fancy like, uh, pardon me, a video or they have something like this, I always read it. And so that was one that also jumped out to me.
0: That is the definition of a captive audience, whether it's 30 (laughs) seconds or two minutes.
1: (laughs) Uh, And there were a few other uh, techniques as well, uh, including um, in-person, and uh, all the gentlemen were uh, very mindful of mentioning that, yeah, when we're talking with our our regulars and we're doing so in-person, uh, that they are using social distancing. They're all very respectful, all very aware of that. And for the golf courses that I've gone back out to play uh, since they reopened, out here at least, I won't say every single one has been especially mindful of that. I don't know your particular uh, experiences in your part of the country, Matt, but I've been impressed how people seem genuinely concerned with the safety of their players and uh, the signage and the communication is a big part of that.
0: The agronomic staff, the facility staff, certainly, whether the players adhere to that or not is another issue, but the, uh, the right steps have been taken to make sure those players are safe when they get there, certainly.
1: Uh, ultimately, and I wanted to spin this little yarn for you. Sure, uh, this was kind of a, kind of a random how this came together, but I didn't intend for this necessarily to reflect well on me, but rather the reach and the impact of what golf course industry can do. Uh, Last week, from several of my parents' friends back in my native Minnesota, they happen to be uh, members of uh, of a great old club and course out there. And in this course's own monthly email blast, they actually concluded the message by referencing uh, the work that we've done together recently with golf course industry and quoting me again, this is not trying to hurt my shoulder by backslapping myself, but rather to let you know the reach of, of golf course industry. Um, they quoted, uh, I believe it's the second to last line in the article that ultimately a culture of individual onus and course or club pride seems to bear the greatest fruit, which says to me that um, you can put up all these signs you want, you can send out all the email blasts you want, you can try to go old school with it, you can try to get new school with it and, uh, and use the technology to your advantage, but as Brian Whitlark from the USGA, one of the sources of my article, and I concluded with this quote, he went on to say, most effective from what I see is the peer-to-peer governance, and that seems to work best. When golfers govern themselves, that seems to be the best way.
0: I think whether that's at a public course or a private club or daily fee, wherever you are, I, th- I think that's that's, you're right. That's the best route to take. You have to have a sense of ownership, whether you're a member or just someone out there for the day, really.
1: I would agree. And uh, in my experience uh, with the Gentleman's Game, over decades and decades, whether playing or writing about it, I think most people, Matt, really do take that to heart. I mean, it is an intangible. And I've had folks, again, whether... In this article or beyond, discussing the same subject matter, in that they're basically experiencing conditions now that they might annually be readying or preparing for or addressing closer to labor date. Which is to say, by and large, these aesthetics and the damage that is being done by the ex- extra carts on the course—it's probably not going to go away for a lot of these. And it might not get better or look better for a lot of these. And to me, it just puts more onus on people respecting and appreciating the property, recognizing these damage areas. And as more carts are out there, as golf rounds seem to be up around the country, take a note of that. And just like you replace a mark, or when there were rakes, when you rake a bunker, this is now something else. Kind of a byproduct of the coronavirus months. I need to pay a little extra attention to and a little more care.
0: And rakes are a whole nother conversation, bunker <laughs> rakes. But you know what? If if we emerge from this without ever seeing another bunker rake, I think a lot of people will be pretty happy.
1: Um. Well, I'll, I'll digress. I don't want to get too far from the intended conversation today, but I think that there are a handful, if not more, of things that we're going to take away from these months that are going to change the way that golf courses are prepared, cared for, and the way that golfers are playing golf. One thing that I will address to bring it back to this article is uh, the name portion of the discussion I had uh, with a real legend. gentlemen. gentleman I've always wanted to interview, Bob Barron from uh, Pinehurst. And the main takeaway that he gave me... Was that more people are walking? This is resulting in uh, in in a lot more walkers, and for a while they had some resistance at uh, at, at Pinehurst to uh, push carts and things like that. But uh, he seemed to explain that that property has certainly embraced it. And while I personally don't live in a place where there's a lot of walking, again by virtue of the heat <laughs> and and by, uh, by course design, I mean, there are some courses that are basically unwalkable, unless uh, you're some kind of triathlete or something. Otherwise, you just totally exhaust yourself from hole to whole Segway. Some of them can be even a couple minutes in a cart. But for the nation, um, I think we're gonna see that this pent-up demand to be outside is gonna extend itself to more people enjoying the outdoors of a golf course by walking, carrying their own bag, taking a push-or-pull cart, into a riding.
0: I think you're right. I hope you're right. Uh, if Bob Farren says it's a possibility, then it's, it's a possibility. I'm actually wearing a Hunter Green Pinehurst dad cap right now while we're recording this. picked it up uh, when we were down there last November. And I am one who appreciates... Uh, is the walking aesthetics of a course not to take anything away from from golf carts so if more people just take that approach to the game that would not be a bad thing either
1: no i thought you were going to say you're wearing a pinehurst shirt and provided the fact that you dropped 30 pounds what happened to all your old clothes did you have to get a whole new wardrobe
0: i actually am wearing some shorts that i had from about nine years ago and uh Got a pair with mermaids on it. Got a pair with swordfish on it. Uh, some anchors. So it's 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 like I have a new wardrobe. They're in great shape. They haven't <laughs> been worn for almost a decade. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that seems to mirror exactly what I'm wearing right now, man.
0: Yeah, and I, not a student tie day. I, I put it with a. Uh, I've got a few kind of offbeat William Murray golf shirts and jackets. I, I wear that, and it uh, it looks like it's all from the same. Same line, same collection. It's all, all together. Yeah. yeah. Oh boy. What else do? You, uh, did you learn while reporting the story? And what are your thoughts on the cart walking dichotomy uh, that we might see coming up again on days that are 113 degrees in the desert? I would expect you to take a cart if you're out there at all.
1: Yeah, and that's just the culture that I'm in. And again, a lot of these courses aren't necessarily built for walking. Uh, Personally, I I enjoy doing both. Um, When there's a course that's uh, a little flatter, a little old school, the green to tea segues, uh, I enjoy. And oftentimes, whatever it's worth, personally, play a little bit better Mm -hmm. when walking. But I don't want to be a hypocrite either. And I basically prefaced each interview I did with all of these gentlemen by saying that every round I have played since March, I have uh, insisted on taking a cart by myself. So perhaps that makes me part of the problem. But while I feel like I've learned how to play safe golf amid the days of virus, um, I'm still concerned, not just for myself, Selfishly, but for my playing partners that I don't want to ride with them, man. And every course that I've been to has offered that possibility to go ride alone. And that's something I see myself doing for a long, long time. Um, again, selfishly, I kind of like how it improves pace of play. And as I'm still stupid enough to smoke cigarettes, I'm not bugging anybody with my cigs. <laughs> But the only, time, the only person that uh, I've really <clears throat> been in contact with, and uh, it's not a, a euphemism, but uh, uh, is my girlfriend. And, uh, and we live together, and that's basically since March. So I don't want to start now by getting loosey-goosey and just assuming that uh, whether it be my dad or my best buddy or one of my regular golf game guys that we go out just about every weekend – I'm just gonna jump in a cart with them. I like riding by myself right now.
0: And I think as long as we get to 2021, certainly 2022, and we don't have foursomes with four carts, I think I think that'll be okay. You know, just get to next year, we can revert back to some old ways. Maybe next year, certainly in two years, but 2020, it's not great, but it's not the end of the world if there's four carts for a foursome.
1: No. And I agree in that in time, whether it be at the turn of the year or whenever we've crossed this threshold, that not only will it work uh, revert back rather to shared carts, but it basically has to. Mm-hmm. I mean, this method, while kind of enjoyable now for a lot of people, I guess myself included, it's not sustainable for the future for a bunch of different reasons, man. That goes for on-the-course uh, maintenance, agronomy, aesthetic, Playability, not to mention the cost of having more carts potentially or maintaining more carts for the courses and clubs that ain't going to work in the distant future.
0: A lot of great thoughts. He is Judd Spicer. You can find him on Twitter, J-U-D-D-S-P-I-C-E-R. Again, in the July issue, wrote half of the cover package, Cart Conversations. He wrote agronomics. Rick Wolf wrote the operations part of it. Judd, always great to have you on. Before I let you go, anything else going on in your world? Anything you want to promote?
1: You know what? I'm just going to uh, close out with a slight nod for this week to be, Matt. And that is going to, uh, again, my native Twin Cities. The second 3M Open uh, Mm -hmm. is going to be played this week. We had an opportunity to do an article on it last year. uh, There were massive renovations. And a great conversation with Mark Mikulski. He's the head super out there at the uh, TPC Twin Cities in Blaine, Minnesota. He gave us some great stuff last year about the quick transition in getting that course ready, going from hosting a longtime Champions Tour event to now hosting the big boys with the PGA Tour. No fans, of course, this week. So when you're watching on television, take a look at the fine work of Mark Mikulski and his staff being done at the TPC Twin Cities.
0: Make sure to give that story a new life on GCI Twitter. I think we will retweet it. If not today, then certainly Wednesday and Thursday as we get a little closer to the tournament.
1: Appreciate that, Matt. Appreciate being back on with you, buddy.
0: Always good to talk with you, Judd.
1: Thanks, man. You be safe and be well.
0: You too. My next guest on Beyond the Page, a familiar name if you read the magazine, our golf therapy columnist, Bradley S. Klein, his second appearance on the podcast. Brad, welcome back. How are you? What's going on?
2: Every day. It's the uh, What do they call that like groundhog day? It's uh, You know, I get up, I write, I find things to do, I find ways to kill time, and I get a lot done.
0: So. You do bear a bit of a resemblance to a very skinny Phil Connors. Bill Murray's character from Groundhog Day, for sure.
2: Um, well, having never actually seen the movie, uh, maybe I need to. It's but a it's one of those movies, like you know, it's entered the cultural uh, everyday airstream, if you will. So,
0: two months in a row, Bill Murray has popped up on this podcast because last month I talked with his brother Joel about Caddyshack and, and now Groundhog Day. But we are here to talk about golf carts. Uh, Your column in June, which preceded the July cover package, was just straight fire if folks have not read it, Rethinking Golf Carts. It's online Uh, with the rest of the June issue. We can uh, retweet it out as well. And I'm sure part of your opinion was formed because you grew up walking and you worked for years as a caddy on the PGA Tour, and so you're predisposed to see golf as a walker, but you raised so many great points in the column that were only just kind of exacerbated or brought back up again because folks couldn't drive carts for a few months earlier in this pandemic.
2: Well, I grew up uh, caddying as a kid and walking, Um, and, um, I actually worked briefly as a cart manager. I think I got a paycheck for three weeks from Textron back in the early 70s. And I quit because I wanted to go back to caddy in the club championship that summer. So I I walked away from a a lucrative job that then paid 175 bucks a week because I enjoyed caddying more. So, uh, partly it's, there's something about the cart that drives me nuts. Uh, And I feel bad, in a way, for golfers who have grown up with nothing but golf clubs. So a lot of it is just the pace that you have. Uh, I've written this elsewhere, um, that riding a car and seeing a golf course from that vantage point is like like watching other people have sex. (laughs) Um, It's the wrong viewpoint. And it's, you know, you're going too fast, you're only four feet above ground, you don't have time to think about your shot, half the time you're managing the cart uh, or the other player or you're trying to figure out what position to be in. And all of that in terms of the game. Now, there are other agronomic issues, obviously, in terms of the impact and the stop and start and the breaking and the turns and all that. But um, And the other thing is I am convinced that a lot of facilities use carts because they're lazy about their pricing and they want to, uh, first of all, extract more revenue from their golfers, but they also uh, seduce players into thinking that the green fee is lower, and then they make up for it by charging them extra for the, you know, by way of a cart. So uh, it drives me nuts to see facilities where they walk up there, you go pay your fee, and the next thing you know, some kids put your, your golf bag on a cart, presuming, that you're going to be riding. Uh, and, you know, so I could go on and on here. I've thought about this a lot. And um, I'll, I'll just leave you for now with one observation, which is that people, management companies, will tell you, well, we got to keep up pace of play. That's nonsense. No one has done a study that has ever shown that people who ride carts play faster than people who are walking. People who are walking know how to get from point A to B. They either caddied or they've walked their whole life and one of the great things about the early stages of golf this year, when the pandemic shut down or slowed down golf, when carts were banned and people were walking, pace of play everywhere picked up by twenty minutes, because people were just taking a straight line, and they weren't wandering around. They weren't fiddling with their cell phones. They weren't adjusting, you know, the, the their, their uh, iPad to find out the latest stock market stuff. They were just playing golf. So. Um, I thought
0: that was great, and uh, I'm sad to see courses that have reverted to four carts to a boot, and I hope we get away from that. I know a lot of superintendents do, too, have been on uh, superintendent Twitter uh, pretty much every day, and almost every day there is a photo that someone has shared, a superintendent or an assistant, or just a ground crew member, for that matter, of just so many tracks across the fairways. It's, it's. I don't want to say it's disgusting, but it is at least disheartening if nothing else.
2: Well, it's going to take a toll, especially when uh, there's moisture out there. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in dry weather, the impact maybe not doesn't show as well. It will by the end of the summer, though. And, you know, um, before this whole thing started, last few years, I regularly saw courses, particularly in the South, there's a culture there where four guys get four carts and race around and it's like, let's go play golf as fast as we can. And they're racing all over the place. And uh, that's when I formulated the idea that uh, there should never be more than uh, one solo card in a foursome. In a group, in any group. And um, I understand that in some clubs, the, the management doesn't even own the cards. The members do. That's crazy. They should. So there, there are a lot of policies that clubs could do. They could charge more. They could simply put pull carts out there, uh, make light bags available, um, encourage people who are walking to have uh, early tee time so they get around faster. There's a lot of things clubs could do, even now, to encourage um, walking because it's healthier, it's more fun, and it's better for the golf course, and it's better for the players who are playing golf. I'm yes. not someone, people mistake me sometimes. I don't believe uh, I'm, I'm not for banning carts, Carts haven't function for people who can't walk. But that's a very small percentage. And one of the great things, earlier this year when people were forced, you know, they couldn't take carts at first in most states where the courses were open, all of a sudden people who hadn't walked in 10 years found themselves able to walk. And they used a pool cart or they took a, a Sunday bag with eight clubs and they had a great time. So, you know, um, I think many more people should be and could be walking but again, I don't think, I'm not looking to ban band cards. I think
0: that's irresponsible. They serve a purpose, for sure. But you're right. I mean, just from a health perspective, the whole notion, and it, it, whether it's exactly 10,000 or not, there's a history behind that number, but the whole notion of 10,000 steps a day, you can get 10,000 steps in three and a half hours playing a round of golf. You're going to walk about five miles. That's about 10,000 steps. You're good for the day.
2: Well, there you are. And uh, you know there are a lot, there are lots of light bags out there. People do—I believe me, most golfers I see do not need 14 clubs. <laughs> I, I've played twice a week, almost every week, twice a week with like nine holes, with a a light carry bag and eight clubs. And um, you know, I don't think I ever had the wrong club. And if I did, I just adjusted. So, um, and I think it's kind of fun because it forces you to play golf and hit shots rather than to think, you know. Most people overestimate how far they hit their 7-iron anyway, so just kind of eyeball it a little
0: bit. Very few people out there are Bryson DeChambeau driving at 350 yards, and, and if you are, you're clearly in the wrong line of work.
2: Yeah, Well, it, it's more, the, the biggest adjustment, or the biggest mis, you know, misread of their game is they think they hit their 5-iron 180 when everyone's. wants to. They might have hit it once after it bounced off a cart path, but, uh, you know, they take their maximum as their average, and then they, they always wonder where they come up short. So, um, But that's, you know, that's the nature of golfers. I understand that. But the walking part to me, um, it's such a different game, and it's the pace and the rhythm and the ability to see the golf course and to take time to turn around. Um, I just think too many golfers and fit young golfers in their 20s and 30s who have never, or you know they're just so used to jumping in a the cart they they would enjoy the and they go when they go to Bandon Dunes or when they go to Scotland or Streamsong they enjoy the game so much and they don't maybe think that there's a reason for that because they're experiencing the golfers at a different pace so I I'm all for that
0: you mentioned a minute ago you're not against banning carts you also mentioned that maybe carts should be at least prohibited the first few hours of tee times, the first two or three hours of tee times. You make a lot of other great suggestions in your column. Again, June, the June issue, Rethinking Golf Carts. Raise rates on cart users, which ties into, you know, having different prices for a round with or without a cart. You limit carts uh, to, again, certain periods of time because the turf is drier later in the day, cart damage less likely. Private clubs can limit carts. Uh, to medically certified members. Public facilities should have a separate rate, uh, all-inclusive fee that uh, rather than an all-inclusive fee that folds into the use of a CART. And, and yeah. so many great suggestions. I mean, have you had the chance to talk with or have any superintendents reached out to you in recent years voicing some of these concerns or these frustrations?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh boy, I almost got my head handed to me at Country Club of Mobile because I, you know, I do a lot of consulting. Mm-hmm. I'm involved behind the scenes with courses, in master plans, management, strategy, policy. I also am on the uh, golf committee for my town for a municipal course that I help I help build and now I help run. So uh, I have, um, I guess some say you would, say, you know, you could say I have some influence. and People talk to me all the time. I was down at Country Club of Mobile. And they were running four carts rampant all over the place. And um, it was clearly a management issue. Uh, and um, they, they reined it in for the most part. Um, you know, obviously things are going to change with the COVID stuff. But uh, it had a big impact on on the Bermuda turf out there. So that's one example. But I get calls all the time from people mainly complaining or bemoaning and asking what they can do. The problem, though, um is that superintendents don't run the facility. They have to answer the managers. And one of the things I try to point out is that while there's no question that golf carts are profitable. But I'm convinced that part of the reason they look as profitable as they are is because, as I, as I like to explain it, the revenue goes to the clubhouse, but the cost is borne by the maintenance staff. Mm-hmm. So the, the general manager is counting all the money that's coming in, but he's not really worried, and maybe he's looking at some of the labor costs involved, although those have gone up a lot lately with cleaning and, sanit- and keeping them sanitary. But the real cost, the, cost, the real cost of those carts is borne by the maintenance staff in terms of wear and tear, sodding, seeding, airification that needs to take place. And even going back before that, in order to build cart paths, you had to add two more acres to your parcel, and you had to spend you know $300,000 or whatever or $400,000 to pave the thing. So there are hidden costs to the apparent profitability of golf carts that are not borne out by the people reaping the revenue, and the burden falls on superintendents. So I like to see more and more understanding of the full financial consequences of carts. And I think the more superintendents are involved in that assessment and the more they spend time looking at the total facility, the more influence they'll have on policy.
0: With that in mind, an ideal future, what would you like to see happen in terms of superintendent involvement with cart uh, management, etc.? And the flip side of that, what do you think actually will happen in the next few years, especially with these last few months of of reimagined cart use? Well, the last
2: few months uh, have been complicated because initially, when golf started to reopen, people were walking and that was great. Now, I think a few too many people are used to getting in a solo cart and racing around. So the first thing that I would say is that the sooner we can get back to double carting, you know, sharing cart, the better, as long as the health guidelines allow for that. And I would um, be, and and what I would do in the community is, uh, once it's allowed that you can take a shared cart, anyone who insists on a solo card should pay for two or the whole card rather than the one. So I hope rates change to adjust to that new reality. Now that's assuming it's safe in terms of, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think we should force people unless the health guidelines allow for it. That's one thing. So I'm hoping that clubs, uh, bring back a shared card that they have more flexible pricing and that, um, that they are much more open to uh, the push carts. I think one of the big changes you will be seeing at private clubs, I see this, places like Shinnecock and National, you know, real fancy, high-end, they're allowing pull carts. That wasn't the case years ago when the assumption was that a pull cart made it look like a muni. Now I think we're seeing that a pull cart makes it look like uh, Ireland or or Scotland, Mm. where they allow pull carts all the time. So, that's one thing I, I think it would really help. I do think that one of the problems in the golf industry is that caddies have gotten extremely expensive. And that if the alternative is, you know, in many urban areas, a caddy is $100. On Long Island, it's $120, that's crazy. Hmm. So if the, if the alternative is either a caddy or a cart, people are gonna take a cart. If, if walking is an alternative, with a push cart, I think that will help. So, um, you know, maybe part of the answer is to see more emphasis on youth caddying where the rates are lower. So you're paying some high school, some high school kid $40, $45 for a round rather than a career adult person who's making 120. So there are are a lot of factors that go into the choice of carts. And I think clubs have to be very careful about that, but it's, the assumption that somehow people naturally gravitate toward cards, to me, is completely false. It's pushed, and the policy is promoted by most clubs who use it as a, an excuse for extracting more revenue.
0: And the youth versus adult caddy conversation is a whole different one, but you have younger caddies, like you said, it's maybe half or a third of the cost, and then you're bringing more kids and more teenagers onto the course in general, which, again, whole different part of the conversation, but... That's only good for the game, to have younger folks on the course. Oh, it's the
2: best thing for recruitment. And, you know, one of the problems that golf has is we lost a generation of kids because they didn't get exposed to the game. Uh, they they didn't get on a golf course till they were adults, rather than people like me who could play on Mondays once we were 14 years old and caddying. Now, I know that in a lot of states the, the labor laws are restrictive, much more difficult in some areas, but there is still quite a bit of room for flexibility, and in those states where you could do it, I'd like to see more of that. And make that part of a scholarship program, so you're not just building golf, you're building character, Uh, and you you hold that into a kind of mentoring program. It works really well at a lot of clubs, been very successful, say at Sandhills in Nebraska, Mm -hmm. where the the kids who caddy go on to great schools and colleges because they're meeting business people, and Successful folks from all over the world who mentor them. So I think if caddying is understood, and the Western Golf Association has done this with the Evans Scholarship Fund, um, I think if you understand caddying as a way of bringing up the next generation, that makes sense as a program. Um, and um, so, but that's you know that's a complicated issue in a lot of areas. So I understand that. That's not relevant to municipal golf not relevant to most public horses. Uh, In those areas, I think what you need to do is have much more uh, restrictive policies on carts. I'd like to see, to go back to my original point, I'd like to see carts confined to cart paths much more often on wet days, for example, rather than letting them run riot all over the place. Uh, My experience is that a lot of club managers are afraid that their golfers will defect to another facility, rather than holding the line on
0: policy. That makes sense. A lot of great points, as always. Brad, I feel like we could talk about carts all day. I know you've got a lot more stuff to do and and a lot more writing to do, so I will leave you with this. I hope when we get through this a little bit more that uh, we're able to go out, maybe you, Guy, me, and and a fourth, and we can have a nice round, at least nine holes, and uh, we can all walk.
2: That's right. That would be the ideal. And, um, you know, I think one of the great things for everybody in the last few months, golf has proven itself to be the healthiest thing you can be doing outdoors with other people. For sure. It's beaten every other game, and it's going to be a great boost for the industry going forward. So I think there's a lot of momentum there. That, uh, is quite, it was quite a surprise and unanticipated back in February. But uh, that's where we are now.
0: He's Bradley S. Klein, the golf therapy columnist every month in Golf Course Industry Magazine. Brad, thank you so much, and we'll talk with you again soon.
2: No doubt. Take good care.
0: My thanks again to Brad Klein and Judd Spicer for taking the time to talk with me on this episode of Beyond the Page. And my thanks to all of you for listening to this podcast every month and to all of the podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network. Guy Cipriano the editor of Golf Course Industry, will be back next week with a new episode of Tartan Talks. Guy and I will be back in two weeks with a new episode of Greens with Envy, talking about where we've been. And we do have some course visits coming up in the next couple of weeks that should be a lot of fun to talk about. Off the course, we'll be back in three weeks. Until then, I'm Matt Lowell, managing editor of Golf Course Industry. Have a great day and have fun out on the course.